All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Mickey here. Welcome to this week's Sunday Chops, which is a doozy if I do say so myself. I mean, it does help that they're all doozies. Now then, while you know we are far from averse to a good swear, they're not normally this near the top, but we're going to be talking about depression. And depression is, to put it bluntly, a fucker. And I say that as someone who struggled with the black dog since I was a kid. It's equally a fucker for those watching someone they love go through it. And that is something which international best-selling author Amanda Prowse knows only too well, having watched her son Josh suffer from such severe depression that he planned to take his own life. And while we're encouraged to talk and told it's okay to not be okay, both of which are excellent bits of advice, it's not always that easy in practice. Amanda and Josh, though, found a new way to communicate, which not only helped them to help Josh and keep going through the most heartbreaking situations, but also got them thinking about how sharing their experience could help others. Cue the Boy Between, a book co-authored by Amanda and Josh, detailing their experiences of Josh's depression and how it affects the lives of those who dearly love him. It's a fascinating read and, I think, a vital one, Not just for someone wanting to understand what a loved one living with depression is going through, although it absolutely helps with that, but also for anyone living with depression as a reminder that those around them feel it too. And as lonely and isolating as depression can feel, and boy can it, you're not alone. 
Before we get to my chat with Amanda, who is just a joy, I wanted to read you a bit from Josh's dedication to all those living with depression, which is at the start of The Boy Between. Don't give up. Talk it through. Write it down. Run, dance, read, paint, sleep, play sport, do yoga, sit in a chair, walk in a park. Do whatever you need to and wait it out until the demon is off your back and the darkness passes. Take a breath. Take a moment. Know that the world is better with you in it. Hello, I am joined on Zoom by best-selling author Amanda Prowse. Hey Amanda, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, lovely. So we're not here to talk about your very many best-selling novels, but rather (laughs) The Boy Between, a non-fiction book you've co-written with your son, Josh. Now, it is fair to say that this has come from a very dark place, hasn't it? Yeah, it's funny. I always say it's the book I didn't want to have to write because I'd rather, obviously, my son didn't have a mental illness. And and I think I was really nervous about putting it down on paper because that made it real for me. Um, and I think I was very good at hiding what was going on and denying, I guess, that there was something wrong because I didn't want him to be a boy like that. I didn't want him to be a boy with severe depression. I wanted him to be the boy that I'd given birth to and given all these amazing futures in my head to you know an astronaut sculptor musician doctor cowboy lawyer I was thinking six foot four preferably obviously with a wonderful (laughs) girlfriend healthy for life two perfect grandchildren living in a three-bed semi down the road and my best friend but you know life doesn't always (laughs) give you what you're actually doesn't give you what what's in your head and and actually I think that was that was part of the problem I think when you have an idea it's hard for you you to get off the track of what you see for your kids' futures. So yeah, a hard book and one I didn't want to write. And I guess the crux point was while he was at university, Josh did actually try to take his own life or at least planned suicide. Yeah, Josh has always been super smart. You know, one of these kids who just sailed through school, academically that was, um, not in any other way, but it was his thing. You know, we used to call him Dr. Josh and Clever Josh and Smart Josh. And I don't think I could ever see a path for him that was anything other than academic success. You know, he was going to sail off and, and get these amazing degrees and qualifications that would then give him a ticket to a life that me, you know, a working class girl from the East End of London could only dream of. And my family were like, oh, we've got this very clever kid. It's like a real gift. It's amazing. We felt elevated by his academic success, which I know is really sort of, it's a very odd thing and it's a very uh, narcissistic thing and it's a, an indulgent thing. But I think lots of us, parents particularly, we tend to do that. Um, and, and, you know, it's, it's not uncommon for you to meet a mother in the supermarket or a father or whoever and says, oh, well, my child's just attained this grade and they're yeah. off to this and they're reading that. And I used to sit there and think, oh, yeah, mine hasn't washed his hair for a month and can't get out of bed. But it's very hard to have those conversations. So I think there was this enormous pressure for Josh to go on and succeed. He went off to uni. I was anxious about his mental health because I think there were some red flags. And Josh pretty much unraveled and it, and it came hard and fast and it absolutely sideswiped us, Mickey. It was like having the rug pulled from under my feet. I didn't, I didn't expect it. I didn't know it was coming. I didn't know what was going on. And then when I did know what was going on, I then didn't know what to do. But yeah, Josh, um, Josh planned to take his own life. And it really, the only reason Josh is still here is down to an awful lot of luck, for which I am extremely grateful, uh, you know, to the universe. I'm not religious, but if I was, I would think it was a divine intervention, but I'm not. So I just think it was the universe, you know, giving me a second chance to keep my boy here. And I'm, I will and always will be eternally grateful for that and fight every day to make sure he stays here. 
having suffered from various bouts of very intense depression throughout my life and from an early age as well it's it's horrible it's fucking horrible but it's so hard for the people on the other side who adore you who love you who want the best for you to watch someone going through that so how did you after all of this arrive at the decision to write the book together actually what you've said is really really interesting I can never understand it I will never understand it. It lives in my house. Depression lives in my house. And we say in the book, it lives in every room. You, it, it's not confined to a cupboard, you know, like the naughty step. There's not one place that depression goes that we can shut it away and all just carry on, you know, eating fish and chips and watching telly and having a little jig. It's not like that. It literally invades every single space in a house. So I live with it, but I will never understand it. And we got to the point where I was feeling... I say this with no small dollop of shame. I was getting very frustrated with Josh. I wanted him to get up and have a shower. I wanted him to find a job. I wanted him to talk to me, look me in the eye, wash his hair. And I could not understand why he wasn't. And I felt he was being obstinate. I felt he was being difficult, like a teenager. It's like, for goodness sake, you know, get up, go for a walk, wash your hair. All the things that I now know, now I'm more educated, are like asking someone, you know, with a broken arm to pick up a box. It's impossible. But I didn't understand that at the time, Mickey. And I would always carry that as my my little, you know, it's really shameful to me. And I feel very upset talking about that because I failed him. But um, that was part of my learning. And actually, I wrote Josh an email. And it sounds really sort of mega cringe, but, you know, not that I'm in the East Wing and he's in the West and it was too far for me to travel. <laughs> I should point that out. Um, he was upstairs and I was downstairs and I, I was finding it really hard to communicate with him. And I wrote him an email and I said, Josh, you've been laying down now for, you know, months, weeks. I don't know what to do. I'm out of ideas. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to help you. You don't seem to want help. And I literally need you to help me to help you. And to my absolute delight and shock he he replied and he said if I'm having a bad day mum which he was every day he said come into my room open the window turn my duvet over bring me a cup of tea and I replied with oh what like you were ill and he Hmm. replied I am ill mum that was really the start of our dialogue and I replied with, well, okay, so what do you mean you're ill, Josh? What, you know, he said, mum, I have a mental illness. And it was the first time I'd seen that written down. It's very hard because no one wants it. And it's scary. And it's not like, you know, if someone has a rash or anything, any other disease you can think of, even the foulest of disease has um, a sort of either a cure or, you know, uh, some way... To, to manage it it's almost an instant fix in some ways but with depression I'd only ever heard people say I live with depression or I battle depression they never said I had a bout of depression it was shit but now I'm fine so I thought this sounds quite long term for me this feels like this might be as good as it gets and that was absolutely petrifying mm-hmm. and paralyzing and before we knew it these back and forth emails we had about 20,000 words and funny enough, my editor came down to, to where we live in the West Country to talk about a different project I was writing. And, and she said, how's Joshy? Everyone loves Joshy. He's, one, he's a really, I know he's mine. He's, a, he's just a really lovely boy. He's really kind and very, very, um, he has a really lovely sense of justice about him. He's just wonderful. And she said, how's Joshy? And I said, oh, he's not so good. I said, in fact, we've been writing to each other. I went off to make a cuppa. 
feed a hen, chuck a chicken out the kitchen as you do. And she was sitting there reading this document. When I came in, she was sitting there with just tears pouring down her face. And she said, I've never understood it in this way. She said, Josh is really explaining to me what it feels like and, I, and what it's like for you. And we decided if we were going to write it, Nick, it had to be warts and all. It couldn't be a sanitised version. You know, there is no moment where we sail off into the sunset and have a glass of fizz and it's all lovely and it's like, well, wasn't that tricky? You know, gosh, I'm glad we're through that. There's none of that. Every day we're in choppy waters. All it is is a snapshot, an observation of what it's like to live it. And I think the point of it is that, A, if I'd read a book like, like mine it would have made me feel less shit about how I couldn't cope, less alone, because I really did feel alone. And also, I think it's just that idea that Josh has a good life. He has a great life. He has good days. He does have severe depression. He does have a mental illness. Is his life valid? Absolutely. Is he a valued member of this planet? 100%. And one day, he wanted to take his life he didn't the next day and he didn't the day after that and so the message really is that you too will have days maybe where you feel like it should be your last day but if you can hang on you won't feel like that tomorrow or the day after I'm nodding vigorously which is incredible for a podcast well done me it's very very true it is that holding on which at the time when you're going through it can feel like the hardest thing to do is to have that patience because depression for me and it seems like with Josh is an absolute lack of control over what's happening to you just the only thing you can do is sleep because then you don't have to think about anything and you don't wake up particularly refreshed but you've not had to deal with anything the thought of taking some sort of action is is a control thing I guess do you know when it's coming on for you? Do you get some sensation? Is there is there one thing? Is it lots of things? or It's lots of things. I've spoken about this on the podcast before, so I won't bore the listeners again. But yeah, I know my triggers. I'm really, really well practiced in this now after several decades of dealing with it. And I know my triggers. I have the tools to deal with what's going on. But when I'm really in it, when the black dog is leading me rather than the other way around, I cannot always get to my tool shed. That is the problem. And I've learned that when that happens, I just sit and wait it out. I like that. I really like the way you've put that, that it leads you and you can't. Yeah, that makes more sense to me because sometimes I feel frustrated because we've been through this list of what to do when it's coming on, Josh. We've been through this list of, you know, there's a tick list, there's a checklist. Um, And when he doesn't employ that, it's like, oh my gosh, but actually that makes, that's that's actually helped me, um, that's made a bit of sense to me because maybe sometimes it comes at you so fast or it's so overwhelming, like a tsunami, like a wave, that you can't actually paddle ashore, you can't actually stand up again. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so that, that I think that's, yeah, that's, that's very helpful for me. Obviously, the conversation that you and Josh have throughout the book is with your reader, but it's also with each other, and it makes sense that it stems from these emails that you were sending each other. And I think that's really interesting because most mental health campaigns, and they are getting refreshingly more frequent, that is a, a really good thing, focus on how it's good to talk, and it absolutely is. But it's not always possible. During my earlier depressions, talking felt as out of reach as everything else. How do you think we as a society can make it easier for both the person who's going through it and the people who want to talk to them? 
there's two things. I think, first of all, I think it's part of a wider conversation where we need to be more open, more honest in our daily lives about not trying to gloss our lives with an Instagram filter of perfection. So I literally, I, I can't tell you the number of people, tens and tens and tens of people who I meet, and I say, how are things with you? And they say, oh my God, what? wonderful I'm great everything's fine everything's wonderful you know the house is clean and tidy you know the kitchen's immaculate it was a casserole popped in the oven I'm learning mandarin and the violin at the same time just been out on my unicycle done a 50 mile run we're having great sex and I'm looking at thinking oh my god well I now don't want to tell you that you know my kitchen is absolutely looks like I've been burgled um haven't cooked from fresh for a month and I'm struggling to get out of the bath which is my preferred place to sit and sulk and think and I think if we could be more honest and then when I say things like oh well actually I'm feeling really low at the moment I've never had depression but I'm feeling quite low they then might say oh do you know actually so am I and I think why didn't we start with that a, it would have saved me five minutes of this conversation b you know another 10 minutes has gone up on me parking but also it's about that honesty. I think we're really bad at having honest conversations. And and it's this it is this sort of world of perfection that we are told we need to live. You know, clean hair, shiny roots, you know, perfectly made up, size eight, skinny waist, great sex, home cooking, all the rest of it that we don't have time to do or I don't have an interest in. And you're made to feel like you're failing because you're not part of that race or that gang or that club. And it's a horrible feeling. You know, I'm in my fifties and I have never felt so much pressure as I do to be you know, that person who's living this particular life because you're bombarded with it. And, and so I think to rail against that, I think is, the, is a first, first start. If we can start being more open and honest about the wider aspects of our life, mental health is just another part of that. And I, my second thing I believe is that it needs to start earlier. These conversations need to be happening in school, in primary school. It's okay for, you know, to be... And I was I was guilty as the next next person because I used to honestly think, Mickey, if I mentioned the word depression, I would make Josh have it. If I said the word suicide, it would make him think of it. And I now know that isn't the case. And I also now know, having spoken to Josh at length to, to write the book mainly, that these thoughts, these little red flags, these feelings of inadequacy and other, you know, low self-esteem issues and a hundred other things that have gone to weave this wonderful tapestry that is my son. They started when he was probably six, six or seven. He can look back and, and remember moments, you know, where he thought, gosh, I don't feel like the person I'm sitting next to. I don't want to do what they're doing. I feel a bit different. I mean, there's lots of studies about, you know, depression being linked to this, uh, an intelligent state almost a state of higher thinking overthinking it's not uncommon for someone to have a high IQ and depression to be an academic achiever and have depression it's very very common mm -hmm. so there has to be something in that but maybe that's where we we start hacking away at the root maybe it's when they're little when they're at primary school and I'm not talking about you know in-depth scary stuff that's going to make parents or kids want to run for the hills but actually just to remove some of the stigma, the shame, and just lay it all out there so that you can you can actually not be afraid of asking the questions that might just help them in the longer term. I think it goes back to what you said at the top there, which is, you know, just being honest. I'm not a mum, but being honest with the little ones, like when they say, how are you, mummy? Or how are you, daddy? And just go, oh, I'm not great today, actually. So they know that that's an allowed response instead of big smile everyone's always got to be cheery happy is the state that we're always aiming for that's an impossible dream isn't it and honestly if we were happy all the time we wouldn't recognize happy anymore so it would it would shift stuff 
I think that's absolutely right. And I think this, um, there is this tendency to, and I, I, I am the guiltiest, guiltiest parent of all. Like I say it in the book, I'm like a cur- you know, sweeper in curling, going ahead, trying to remove all the little bumps so my kid's glide path through life is as perfect as it can be. But that's not what builds resilience in you. You know, that's not what actually gives you gives you the tools. And it's wonderful to want, you know, to want to do as much as I can for my boys. I adore them. I want to have them to have this amazing, um, you know, healthy, emotional, social life. I want them to have everything that's 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 positive. But actually, I think I, I have in the past certainly done exactly what you're saying. I have sanitized emotion to make it, you know, rinse clean and shiny and happy, which then meant it was harder for Josh to say, actually, I'm really failing, I'm really flagging. What happened to Josh, or certainly the darkest days, were when he was at university. So the stats on suicide, where it remains the biggest killer of men under 45 in the UK, are grim anyway. The stats on student mental health are exactly as grim as that the most recent available are from 2016 to 2017 when 95 students in the UK took their own lives that's a a horrific number and there are definitely things that you would like to see change within that system aren't there yeah massively I mean uh, there's this wonderful the student charter that is being advocated by uh, student minds which is amazing it's basically trying to set out best practice for university there is no standardized best practice across all institutions of learning which is you know for me that's unthinkable in this day and age when mental health and young male suicide is such a problem why don't we have best practice set out this opt-in scheme so one of the biggest um issues one of the biggest problems I faced was trying to get information about Josh I suspected something was up with Josh I suspected he might need more support it really was literally that simple Mm -hmm. and the university couldn't tell me a thing because he was a grown-up and obviously that was uh, that was contrary to you know data protection acts and all the rest of it but at the end of the day my child's life hung in the balance and to think that it was because someone hadn't think thought to you know allow a communication uh, just tick a box to to make sure that's possible to think i nearly lost my child because there was a lack of agreement between parents and and universities which i'm sure there must be a way to get around data protection where you just literally both agree you tick a box and then they're able to talk to me. And I felt that in Josh's case, the university wanted to talk to me, but their hands were tied legally. So I think there needs to be a much better standardisation of the care that a student can expect when he or she goes off to university. That, for me, would bring so much peace of mind as a, as a parent and a carer if you knew that that communication was going to be open, that line of communication. I think that would be incredible. There are many, many universities doing great things, but some that are still failing there are helplines that close at five in the evening they, they operate nine till five and funnily enough you know if you've uh, if you if you're having a mental crisis it doesn't tend to happen during working hours <laughs> it can often happen after you've you know after you've taken alcohol or drugs or you're lonely or you're alone you know, there's a million factors but it's not always three in the afternoon you know when mary sat behind the desk with the phone primed so we need this 24-hour care and I think sharing experiences and sharing data openly would go a huge way. I think people are understandably cagey about talking about numbers because it can tarnish the reputation of a university. But you know what? It's putting these numbers out there. It's by being open that we find solutions going forward and that you as a parent and you as a student can make a more informed choice. 
Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. And I think, I mean, it's bad anyway, but what's happening right now to kids at university is just fucking horrific. So, yeah. You know, my heart, literally, I I have had emails from, from students up and down the country. And honestly, if I had... If I had the time, a big enough car and a big enough property, I would scoop them all up and bring them here because it absolutely, oh, it just breaks my heart. It breaks my heart that right now, um, you know, people are suffering and, and there's no funding available. It's still, a, you know, something that sort of seems to fall by the wayside. And I know budgets are stretched and I know that lecturers are at their wits end. You know, they too are under enormous mental mental pressure. Their mental health is failing probably in a lot of cases because they are pulled thin with everything they're having to do right now. But we just need a more standardised approach. We need access to mental health services. You as a student right now in, in, many, in many counties in the UK, you can make an approach... Uh, via email via your GP and it can be up to three months before you have your first contact with someone who may even then not only be able to not help you but direct you to another service you know everything is delayed we need to be it needs to be a fast track because when you're in crisis there isn't a waiting list that that it's not going to make a difference to you when you're in crisis you need help now you're really really hard on yourself in the book and there's been some moments in this interview as well where you've mentioned carrying shame and being incredibly frustrated and berating yourself for what you see as naivety and you give yourself a very tough time for stuff that's almost impossible to notice if you don't know what you're looking for which you didn't as someone who's had depression in such a similar way to Josh, I'd like to gently suggest that you need to cut yourself some slack. Yeah, and I think that's I think that's really and thank you for saying that first of all. That does actually you know, that does actually make me feel a bit better, but I think I do feel an incredible amount of guilt because I feel my job was to fix Josh. And one of the things I've learned in writing the book is that I can't fix Josh. I can't fix Josh. No. And actually, Josh can't be fixed. It's not, you know, that's, but that's what, kind of what I've learned, Mickey, that I can't fix him. It's not like putting a bandage on his knee or a magic biscuit if he's fallen over or telling him a story or anything like that. I can't fix it. And it's been one of the things that has been the hardest for me to learn and accept, but probably the most valuable because I've learned to just let him be rather than go into solution mode. Mm-hmm. My mum was a single mum as well when I was little. A lot of the things that you sort of give yourself a hard time for come from you wanting to also live your life. And that is just, it's mad to me. And I think Josh is still very close to a a very horrible thing that happened to him that was terrifying. And he he does come across as quite angry in sections of the book. And some of that anger, or quite often that anger, is directed at you. And what I'd also like to say is that I've been angry with Anne, my mum, who was doing her best and didn't understand and doesn't have depression, so didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. I couldn't help her. But as time has gone on, all I feel is love that she was there and grateful for her. And I'm very sure that as he gets older, Josh will feel exactly the same for you. Yeah, thank you. And I think there's already there's already signs of that. You know, it's interesting. I think that anger is absolutely, you're absolutely right. And frustration, he didn't want this to happen to him. And I think he's still dealing with a future that's been, is an illness has taken away the future that he had planned. Mm-hmm. 
And that's a hard thing to deal with. When you're known as clever Josh and your clever lets you down because your brain is failing, which is your tool, your one thing, your, you know, he's had to completely rethink his future, his plans, his life. And let's face it, most people at the moment are having to do that anyway, which I think is, it's, you know, he's not, he's not alone in that. But I think it's a very hard thing for anyone to have to understand and, and, and literally get their head around. And I think some of that anger is dissipating. And he said to me recently things like, you know, I know that how you behaved came from love. It came from a good place. And I'm like, oh, it really did. You know, that for me is a, that's a massive win. But I think you're right. I, think, I mean, our journey continues. Yeah, there are good days, there are bad days. We are both still learning so much about this illness um, that I think will be, obviously, it's not going anywhere. But the good days are really good. The bad days are still really bad. But it used to be the bad days were really, really bad and the good days were okay. So actually, this is a massive improvement. You know, I'll take it. <laughs> That's really good to hear. He's awake more when he's asleep. You know, if he's joining us for a cup of tea on the sofa and able to say how he's feeling... It's all such that's incredible, you know, that's huge progress. I don't underestimate the value or the power of that, the fact that he can sit and talk to us and tell us how he's feeling. And how are you? Knackered, mate. <laughs> it's twenty twenty. It's twenty twenty. <laughs> Absolutely pulled thin. I said, Do you know it's funny because it's so in a way, Josh has a uh, permission to take to his bed for a few days because he needs to, because he needs to close down. I don't have depression. So in a way, when he takes to his bed, that's when I then do every other job that needs to be because I have a career, I have a job I need to do. I have, you know, animals that need taken care of. I need a, ha- a house that, you know, needs some attention. And so in a way, I feel like I, I never stop. And this isn't me shining my own halo and saying, oh, you know, where is me? I have a wonderful, a wonderful life. I have a wonderful, wonderful, happy life of pure privilege where I do a job I love. I get to sit on the sofa on my fat arse, drink tea and write books. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. You know, my, I, I am not literally, my life is amazing. But I said to Simeon, my husband, Simeon, who's a soldier, I said to him, it's like I don't, I don't have a day off from it. If Josh is having a good day or a bad day, my worry level doesn't change. My disturbed sleep at three in the morning, is he going to be okay? Not, not so okay? Have I, that never stops. So it's relentless. But I'm having to learn to manage that. And actually, I, I am just so, um, I am incredibly upbeat, incredibly positive. I'm one of those irritating people that no matter what, you know, chuck at me what you like you know, cancer, debt, eating disorders, death, whatever. We've had the lot. And I still find a way to wake up and say, do you know what? It's all going to be okay. Because that's how I'm wired. And it's frustrating. I think I think it's almost more frustrating for someone like Josh to live with someone like me. It's like <laughs> holding up a mirror and you're like, give it a rest, you know. But yeah, you know, there's people that at five in the morning are hoovering and happy. And that's me. Not all the time. I have days where I cry in the bath. I cry in the bath a lot. That's my space. But generally, I have to say, I am 90% of the time, I feel, yeah, happy. Good. Happy. But yeah, I'm knackered. I need, I, need, I, need a, I need a mental break, I think, from 2020. But who doesn't? Oh, we've all got a brain full of bees, haven't we? <laughs> just, uh, just short bees. <laughs> it's the uncertainty, I think, I think, Mickey, the uncertainty of where we're at and what's happening and that feeling that we might all be on the crumbling cliff edge and we don't know whether it's we're going to drop or we're going to soar. None of us know, you know. Well, on that bombshell, 
<laughs> the Boy Between, A Mother and Son's Journey from a World Gone Grey is published by Little A and it's out now and available from all good bookshops. And obviously, Amanda, you have your fingers in various other book writing pies. So where can people follow you on the old socials and find out what you're up to? Oh, I am Mrs. Amanda Prowse on just about everything. Amanda Prowse was taken. It's not a statement of my joy at being wed. Um, although I am very happy to be wed, of course, for the last 150 years to the same man. Um, but no, I think, yeah, it's literally, it's Mrs. Amanda Prowse um, on everything. So, yeah. People can always find you, can't they, if they want you? They can always find you. Yeah, that's another terrifying <laughs> note to end something on. But thank you so much for chatting to me. I loved it. We could have talked all day, actually, Mickey. It was nice. Standard Issue for All Women.